I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name's Shelley Johnson. I'm a HR consultant and the founder at Boldside M. Hey, Shell. Emily Bowen here, and I'm the COO of Rare Kind. Today on the show, we're talking about what to do if you're in a psychologically unsafe team. We're going to dig into the signs of psychological safety or a lack of safety. And we're joined by a really good friend of the show, Dr. Amy Silver. Amy Silver is a psychologist and a speaker and an author. And she really works in this space of courageous conversations. And it's a really good link between If you're in an environment that maybe feels unsafe, your work or team environment, what do you do about it and how do you have those conversations and how can you help an organisational team become more safe? So this episode is just so important, really good conversation. You're going to love it. Enjoy the show. Hi, Amy. Hi, girls. How you doing? Yeah, really well. It's been too long. I know. Do you know, you are my favourite podcast I've been on, actually. So, And I tell you why, because your listeners are so lovely and I get so many messages from your listeners saying how much they enjoyed the show. So, um, yeah, a very interactive audience, I feel. I love that. And I feel it's important to call out that we're not the only podcast you've been on either. (laughs) (laughs) Not the favourite and only, a favourite of many. Many, many, many. That's right. It's it's so funny you say that because you, your interview, when we did, when we met with you the first time, which I can't, it would have been probably, what, like six months ago, longer. 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 12 or 18, I was going to say, my goodness. You know, it's all a blur. Um, That episode was like so impactful for my life like I know we talk about our listeners loving it and they do I have your book and when I started my business about six months ago your book was right next to me I was like flicking through highlighting underlining because it really spoke to me it's called the loudest guest if you haven't got it get it it's about it's about fear and your relationship with fear and Amy, you, your work is just so important for people like me who are having these moments of like outlandish fears that they're trying to navigate in their life or at work. And so I just want to say, I just really value your work so much and it's had such a big impact on my life. Thank you so much for saying that. Thank you. I I didn't realise that Shell had the tissues next to her ready for when she was going to tear up. (laughs) We haven't even started yet. <laughs> totally. Well, uh, here we are. Uh, yeah, so let's absolutely. go there. And I think we're, we're demonstrating a psychologically safe we, moment, aren't we? Which is very we, topical for today. We totally are. So today, let's talk about this idea of psychological safety. So how this episode has come about, I posted something on LinkedIn the other day and it got a lot of the kind of interest and shares and so on. And it was this idea of signs that your workplace or team might not be psychologically safe. 
And before we kind of dig into that, what we want to do is talk about, well, what is psychological safety? And I might throw it at you, Anne, because you've got the definition up, but this idea of what does it mean to have a psychologically safe team? Yeah, absolutely. So we are, um, I guess, reading a definition here, but it is one that we think captures it really, really nicely. And that is that psychological safety is the belief that you won't be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns or mistakes. And in particular, in a workplace, what that can look like is that you feel like uh, the team or, you know, the people around you will not embarrass, reject or punish you for speaking up. So, Amy, just to kind of open up, before we get to the signs of if your team isn't psychologically safe, for you, what do you think the important, like, what is the importance of psychological safety? It's so interesting because there was a lot of research in this area that came out about 20 years ago. And since then, it's become this real buzzword in team effectiveness. Google did a big big research study. And then Professor Amy Edmondson is probably the guru in this space. And a whole heap of work has been done to show how important it is in the workplace for effectiveness. But actually, it's something that has been known about for a long time in the psychology world and is pretty important in any sort of therapy place, which is where I started my life was in therapy. So, If you don't have safety, it doesn't really matter what else you do in terms of techniques, in terms of therapy or, you know, all the different theories and ways of practice that you can, can, um, can go forward with somebody. It doesn't really matter what you've got in terms of techniques and tools unless you have safety. So it's the primary goal to allow for the foundation for you then to teach or for you to then to, to grow or learn. So in a workplace, really it's, only value, which is, sounds crazy, but its only value is so that you can make use of the individuals in that space. So without psychological safety, people cannot learn, people cannot uh, ideate, people cannot take the risks that are necessary for us to do good work together. So it's almost, it's, it's not the end point, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's not that we want psychological safety for psychological safety's sake. We want it because it makes everything else work. It's really interesting you say that of we don't want it f- for its sake alone, but it's it to me, I look at psychological safety or if you want to simplify it, it's like this real deep sense of trust that I'm safe here, that I'm, I can trust the people deeply that I work with. And I I think it's this foundational piece of a healthy team. Like if you think about what what do, what kind of team do I want to be a part mm-hmm. of? It's a team where I can show up as myself and there's, there's this sense that I'm accepted, I'm valued, I'm safe here and therefore I can take risks and I can do things that are like raise concerns in a way that might be bold because we have this foundational piece of safety and trust. Yeah, that's right. That I mean, essentially, it's this moment that we share. It's this shared responsibility and this shared belief that we are safe enough to take an interpersonal risk. So a moment where we can say, I don't know what that acronym means, or here's an idea that I have that may be a little bit different from what we're currently talking about, or why do we do it like that? Or what's my role in this meeting? Or here's some feedback. These things that we do, which are actually that moment where we have to kind of overcome 
the self-screening piece that kind of inhibits us doing that. And so the safety allows us to be courageous. The safety allows us to step into um, our true individual wisdom, if you like. And for any group, any team that's trying to get a collective to uh, be intelligent around each other, for us to be able to access our individual um, differences, we kind of need to learn how to have this shared space that we can trust, as you say. But it's not me trusting you. It's us trusting this space to hold us while we travel through that little risk. Yeah. Wow. That's a really interesting thought that it's the trust in the environment and the space. Yeah. Amy Edmondson talks about it like a climate. It's like a, a sort of a weather sort of system in which we kind of Uh, find ourselves. And we all have a responsibility to influence it. Any of us can influence it. Um, Generally, though, obviously, there's a um, a leadership bias, you know, there's a sort of a lens that um, or a weighting that leaders have over creating that climate. That's really important for us to understand. And it's all of our responsibility to contribute to it one way or the other, We, we all make a difference to that weather system. From this, from unpacking this definition and, and what it feels and looks like, I'm sure that we've got listeners out there who are either nodding along and going, oh, now you mention it. Actually, I, I didn't realise that was what I could call the space that I'm in at work, but I feel really lucky. I have a psychologically safe space uh, within my team and I'm learning that as I'm listening. There would be others though who are probably recognising through this that what they've been feeling at work and where they hold back is because they don't have that psychologically safe space. That's not something that exists for them. Shell, the LinkedIn post that you talked about did a really good job. Mind you, the list was not short, <laughs> but it did, which, which I say kind of horrified in a way, but um, it did a really good job of capturing, well, when you're in a space at work that's not psychologically safe, what does that look like? Or what are the things that people could keep an eye out for that would indicate that there's work to be done? Did you mind sharing some of those for us? Yeah. So it was like 14 signs that your team isn't psychologically safe. I actually had about 20 and I thought, (laughs) where do I stop? Like it's just this big, long, ranty list, but I'll list them off actually as quickly as I can. And, And we don't, as we listen, it wouldn't be the case that we need to be, you know, nodding to, or ticking off every single one of them. No. It could just be that one uh, or two are yeah. relevant. Yeah. Okay. So here's some of the signs. Number one, debate is silenced. Number two, leaders are easily offended. Number three, everyone knows the problem, but no one feels able to voice it. Number four, there's always a meeting after the meeting. Number five, a good news only culture. Number six, disagreement is viewed as disrespect. Number seven, there are in and out groups. Number eight, status and hierarchy run strong. Number nine, boundaries are seen as a weakness. Number 10, when mistakes happen, blame shifting is the go-to response. Number 11, certain topics are taboo or off limits. Number 12, people have their guard up in meetings. Number 13, feedback is met with defensiveness. And number 14, niceness is preferred over honesty. I tell you what, number four, there's always a meeting after the meeting. That just Mm. hits, doesn't it? I mean, so many of them do, but uh, that is one for me that I I remember reading that at the time and just going, oh, yeah. Ouch. Yeah, absolutely. 
Amy, what do you think like about those signs? Like, are there, are there other signs that you see of psychologically unsafe teams? I think, unfortunately, we see the consequences um, stack up. So it is this desire for comfort, you know, over courageousness. And in, in particular, look, I, I run programs that are designed to, around having courageous conversations and they are not possible in a team that isn't feeling safe. So um, for good reason, <laughs> you know, like I think we, we need to kind of moderate this conversation with there are some circumstances which are actually unsafe, you know, and, and you are in a situation where if you do raise a concern or you challenge somebody that um, doesn't want to be challenged and they're in a leadership role, that that could end up badly for you, you know. So it's um, this understanding of where you want to be and, and how you want to run your career and where you make decisions that are right for you. But I think we all have those moments where we feel that we're holding back. Um, it may be that we end up kind of doing a little bit of groupthink uh, where we sort of um, have a conversation that lends towards the most powerful person in the room's perspective. Um, and we may kind of uh, uh, um, push down some of our thoughts and question ourselves because of that. You know, maybe I'm the one that's kind of, you know, should know what this acronym means. Or maybe I'm the one that could, you know, maybe my idea is a stupid idea, so I shouldn't actually raise it. Um, and we have this kind of balance around the fears that it takes to kind of bring some of these conversations to life. So, yeah, I think where I see it happen, uh, the consequences most is in the kind of courageous conversations that we're having, the cognitive diversity in the space, the amount of airtime that people get. Google said that, you know, us being able to share airtime and not that everybody has to have the same amount of speak time, but that there should be flow, that there should be invitations, that there should be curiosity uh, we should be looking for alternative ways of thinking about things. We should be challenging our expectations about each other. We should hold each other to account for contribution in conversation. So these are all the ways in which we, I guess, may, you know, if we kind of take the reverse of that, it's one person or two people dominating meetings, um, one or two ideas dominating our thinking. So any time that we're just not being broad in our thinking, I think is a, probably a cue that we're not excavating individual intelligence. We're sort of norming around a dominant piece or a um, complacency piece. So we see complacency, we see over politeness, but we also see the sort of uh, defensiveness um, side of um, those fears too. Yeah, it's really interesting when one of the big tells for me, if you're looking at signs and it's a really cool thing to watch in a, in a, a meeting context, let's say you've got a team meeting and someone speaks up and disagrees with the dominant view. So let's say they disagree with their leader about the way a project's heading and they, I can see it in my mind happening. This happens it, it, where you you disagree and you're very tentative about how you put it forward because there's power dynamics and it's, it's brave and courageous to do that. So you might disagree and go, well, look, I, I'm concerned about this, this and this and I'm not sure that we should be heading in that direction or whatever. One of the biggest tells about psychological safety is the leader's response to that in that moment because if they respond and shut down 
that discussion, I reckon that's where people start to learn, okay, well, disagreement's not not okay here. But if a leader in response to a disagreement or a diverse perspective thanks a person and says, oh, thanks for raising that, let's talk about that a bit more, well, then you go, oh, well, a different view or or dissenting view is actually welcome here. That's right, yeah. I, I love looking at those tells. Are there things I'd love for and an Emmy even what what are your thoughts as you're thinking through those signs or indicators that you can see in the moment? Oh, look, I'm not sure that this is in the moment actually. It's probably more built up over time, but something we, we haven't touched on directly so far that I've seen is I guess you could call it disengagement, but people just nod along and they just don't bother speaking up. So they actually lose the energy for it, where they maybe have tried what you've described, Shell, they've experienced that defensiveness or that being shut down. And then pretty quickly, they just go, okay, you know, we'll be asked, we'll be in a meeting, we'll be asked for our opinion, we just won't say anything, we'll, we'll sort of sit there and be a passenger and then we'll head out of the room and we'll go back to doing whatever we might have been doing. So for me, I think silence could be another telltale sign potentially as well. Yeah, and um, one of the models that I use in my um, training, we talk about head down, you know, where you kind of just opt out because you can't see the relevance or it's just not worth it or the response isn't what you need or people aren't listening or you can't see the value that you have. So that sort of really passive sort of apathetic kind of place, which is just a really damaging place for us to find ourselves for too long. But those are, as you say, that silent sort of holders of a seat in a meeting, but not really contributing um, is really dangerous for our productivity. So head down, I call it head head in the sand when we have something to say, but we're just not courageous enough to kind of bring it up for uh, consumption or in that space. It's not right for us to do that. So head head in the sand, and then moving head first would be that kind of style of getting it out there quickly and being really dominant and um, being courageous, but not necessarily in tune with what's going on around you. So very um, clear on what you're saying and what you want to say, but unaware of the impact on other people. And I think those uh, head down, head head in the sand, head first are kind of where we find ourselves. And if you think about it, that's really our response to fear. So that's um, flight, you know, as in kind of running away and avoiding contributing, playing dead, which is the apathy sort of head down one, and the fight version, which is the head first. So this is all a conversation really about how we respond to fear within a group setting. Um, And what we actually need to elevate any sort of group is this combination of courage of self and being able to create safety for self, but then also um, being so in tune and being aware of the impact that we have on each other. Because your example before about having like the leader sort of shut something down, if if we're in a meeting and if you remember this kind of climate sort of an analogy, um, anybody else, even if they're not in a powerful position, can back you if the leader is shutting you down, you know, can still kind of create a space where there's interest, curiosity. Um, and it's up to all of us not to fall in line with, 
oh, the leaders shut it down. So, okay, we're all going to shut it down. Um, so this is this kind of shared responsibility that we have. And as I said, I think leaders have a huge responsibility to to own their their contribution to that climate. But I think we all need to take a stand in creating it together and um, not sort of allow uh, spaces to become unsafe because that's the dominant um, view. Does that make sense? That makes a huge amount of sense. And I'm really glad that we're, we're going to sort of move into that part of the episode where we can talk really practically about what we can do and, and tackle that from a way which is all of our responsibilities regardless of our position title. Before we do that, we'll head to a break and then, yes, let's, let's just learn more and more and more from you, Amy, when we come back. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money Medical, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, and My Millennial Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right, we're back. So we've, we've kind of unpacked what the definition of psychological safety is and the signs that your workplace or team might not be psychologically safe. Now we want to dig into what do we do about it? So Amy, we're in this zone. What do we do? Like how do we, how do we actually respond and help build a psychologically safe team? So I do think it does depend on your role a little bit. You know, if you are um, a manager or you have leadership hierarchy in your workplace, I think this is incumbent on you to understand that what you do has an incredible um, weight on the culture and the space and the safety that is created around you. So I absolutely do think that leaders have a massive responsibility to think about this, to practice it, to look within self, to understand how to do it, because it requires a huge amount of vulnerability and ownership of um, our interpersonal flaws, you know, and we kind of have to let go of ego a little bit and sort of stand in the fact that I might not know it all if I'm the leader <laughs> and that I need everybody um, and that I might not have the answers and somebody might have a better answer and that my first answer or what I think is the truth might not be. So that requires a lot of humble sort of awareness. So I think the more hierarchically senior you are, the more of a responsibility you have to 
to look within and face some of these things so that we can out loud own some of our failures, um, out loud uh, bring in some of our challenges and vulnerabilities. And I think um, by doing that, by the leader going first, they provide this beautiful starting place for everybody else, as you say, to kind of go, oh, well, if that's kind of allowed that we can talk about where we've messed up or where we failed or um, what's difficult or where we're unsure about things, then we can actually kind of drop some of those screening things. So I do think that leaders can model this by being curious, by acknowledging their own problems, um, their own failings, and to frame work as a learning space rather than a kind of uh, a truth space. You know, we're all, you know, let's try this, you know, let's work on this. And framing um, problems and work as almost experiments and kind of being okay with that, I think is, is really important. It's a really interesting thought around framing it as an experiment. I love that idea because if you think of yourself as a scientist, I mean, re- uh, reading if, uh, Adam Grant's book, it's taken me a while to actually <laughs> get to this one that's been on the list, um, Think Again. And he does talk a lot about the power of scientific thinking that instead of thinking I always need to be right, it's I'm, I'm testing my hypothesis and if I get new information, well, then I'm adapting and relearning. And as a leader, the importance of that but not just for leaders, for any of us to be relearning the things that we think are absolute truths or the beliefs that we have. And 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 I, I just love that idea of experiments, Amy. It's such a, a cool concept. Well, it, it gives you that permission to just get a result, not feel the pressure to get a correct result or the right result, whatever that might mean. Because I guess that's all that if you are a scientist – you're looking for, you turn up each day and you repeat experiments looking for a result and you record the result. And then as you say, you adapt and you do things differently based on how that evolves your hypothesis. I'm obsessed too. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's tricky for leaders because, you know, we, you know, safety is also, we feel safe when someone is in control, which, you know, (laughs) we, we look to our leaders to have certainty around something. So I think, it's always this balance. It's always this kind of um, what what does the space, what do the people around me need to enable them to feel safe in this particular moment? Um, you know, as the ship is kind of like going down and we're sinking, that's possibly not the time to talk about how all the things that have happened in my life that have gone wrong have happened, you know. But there's this kind of balance of sort of what what, and I guess this is the, this is the kind of invitation for all leaders is to be acutely aware of the safety that people are experiencing now and what your role is to enable that safety because within that frame, within that safety, people can do their best work. So it's sort of being aware of this kind of um, responsibility and moderating and learning how to be vulnerable and also how to be strong um, and how to play that sort of dynamic to, to keep people in the space that, that serves them. As we're unpacking this, I think it's really easy to visualise ourselves in work, in a meeting, doing our jobs. And I wanted to throw out there the idea that so much of what I'm hearing, I'm also thinking about how you can apply that through the recruitment process in an interview even as well. And so if you're an employee and you're heading along 
to attend an interview, I would encourage you, and I'm, I'm sure both Amy and Shell would join me in making sure you're looking for signs and an experience that gives you a sense that it's a psychological safe workplace because of the nature of that conversation as you would expect to experience it if you're in a meeting, for example, once you've got the job. And on the flip side, if you are the, the hiring manager to show up in this way as well and to talk about the fact that you're in a learning state and it is a learning experience as an organisation and that even at an interview when you're talking to a candidate, you don't need to have all of the answers. This is such a um, different way of seeing things and it's really important for us to understand what a cultural shift this is for us entirely, not just kind of in our individual teams, but as a society. Because you think about how much fear is part of the systems which we operate in, in, um, you know, we're kind of taught to, you know, right from the beginning, right from school, um, we're taught that to fear those in control of us, you know, and to uh, moderate our behavior in line with what other people expect of us. So, you kind of, you know, the recruitment process is an incredibly scary process and um, everybody's feelings are sort of heightened and you think kind of like old school recruitment um, would be very much kind of, well, let's make this person kind of pretty much under a threat scenario and see what happens. Whereas now it's really much more kind of we're all aware that people are going to perform better when they feel more relaxed and understand the context within which they are. And it's the same at work. And um, We've got a lot of unpicking to do because um, work has been fear-based for a long time. Um, people work hard when they're in, in fearful situations until they don't, and then it becomes something that really um, eats away at our potential. So it's it's a real shift for us culturally and one that we have to make. And in fact, we haven't brought it up, but uh, in Victoria, we've, uh, we're just about to have new legislation in the OH&S um, land where organizations can be held to be responsible for the psychosocial safety of individuals in their workspace. So we're going to have a lot more guidance from government around this area on the expectations of work to make sure that there are not risks that undermine the safety of the individuals from a psychological space. So there's a lot of deprogramming that we all have to make and organizations kind of will need to be on the forefront of this because um, the expectations are going to be there from uh, government. Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. Hopefully, uh, Victoria is leading the way from that point of view for us and, and the rest will follow. You mentioned earlier, Amy, that there are things that we can do as an employee. So, even where we don't have that hierarchical title uh, and that responsibility that comes with it. We might be in a meeting or in the workplace and, and we see something play out. There is something we can do. Can you talk to us about that? What's our role as a teammate and an employee in regards to psychological safety? I think, I mean, as, as you know, I've got courses on this, so we could sort of spend a long time talking about this. But um, I think the overall piece and, and where I, I hope people understand um, at the end of my time with them is their role as a facilitator of a space. So if you are in a meeting, if the conversation, even if the conversation is not particularly relevant to something that you have to contribute, or you can't even see kind of where um, you have value, our role in any conversation is to facilitate that conversation. And so 
if we think of ourselves as a facilitator <laughs> um, of this space that we are sharing together that has a longer tail than this particular conversation. Um, so if somebody, if you are in a meeting, taking the role of a facilitator is a really powerful one. And if we were all doing that, we would have a really powerful meeting because it it's impossible for all of us to micro kind of look at everybody um, in, and everybody's tell signs or, um, you know, those micro moments where somebody puts their hand up to stop someone from talking because they've had enough. That's a microaggression kind of um, thing that would have a long tail where people would kind of go, oh gosh, you know, I spoke too long there. People got bored or I was starting to talk out of turn. And there's this whole internal dialogue that they're left with that then they moderate their behavior. And that is a sign of them walking away from that meeting with less psychological safety than they started with, right? But that person who put their hand up to stop someone talking may not even realize that they're doing it because of these kind of ingrained habits that we have. And the person who receives the hand up kind of while they're talking may not even understand sort of the process that just happened. You know, they just got stopped very clearly, but they might not realize that um, what, you know, then they will probably go into self analysis rather than understanding about what's happened in the conversation per se, or what happened to their idea. Someone else in the room could possibly spot that a little bit and invite more context around what's happened. So they could sort of, uh, you know, take another pause and just say, I'm, I would love to hear a little bit more about that perspective. Or um, I've noticed that when we were talking about this thing that didn't have the same you know, um, trajectory, we kind of shut it down. I wonder whether we could just explore it a bit more or I feel like we haven't heard from Susie for a while. Susie, I'd love to hear. Or I noticed that Bill, you kind of, um, you know, looked a little bit quizzical about that thing. Can I invite you to share what it is? So if we are actually aware of these micro things that are happening between us and then elevate ourselves into the status of facilitating this space, that's a really active thing that we can do to allow for us to have an increased awareness of the interpersonal frictions that might be happening that shut down our safety. So I think if people kind of walk in with this attitude of, I have this responsibility to this climate that we create, I can alter it any way. My emotions are contagious. We know that my actions are contagious too. If I ask a curious question that will model the um, capability for us to ask curious questions. If I model saying, um, I might be wrong, but I'd love to kind of explore this angle for a while. Again, you're modeling the idea that you might be wrong and that you know that you might be wrong. If you notice that the conversation is very one-sided, we're going down a particular road, then we play sort of devil's advocate. What's the alternative perspective? How do we look for the alternative thing? And so we actually facilitate looking for the cognitive diversity. Who's got any arguments that would be different from what we're currently talking about? So you pride this kind of space of collecting new thoughts, new ideas, and maybe doing some brainstorming even where everybody has some alone time to think about something before we talk so that we elevate our own individual thinking about things. Because this is all about collecting collective ideas. It's all about the wisdom in the individuals and elevating that into a space where we can work together. 
Wow, there's so much there in what you've just shared. And I love you said this one word multiple times of notice, noticing, like becoming aware. And I seem to recall in your book, it was this idea of, of noticing, of paying attention to yourself, actually doing that self-awareness mm. piece of how do I notice in myself when I'm doing something, but how do you look around the, because often in, in group context at work, we're very clued into what we want. So I'm like in there, I'm like, I've got my agenda and I'm going to ram that home and everyone's going to know what I want to get out of it. But I love how you've just described this way of notice what's happening within the group that we're working in. Look around the room and if someone is quieter and one of those quieter team members might have a good idea, but they're not feeling like they can voice that, how can you draw that out? Oh, I noticed that Jane had this thing that maybe she should share and I'd love to hear more about that. And there's so many things in your what you've shared there, Amy, around asking questions, curious questions. And one of my favourites is this, tell me more. Tell me more about that or what else is there for you? And I think it's um, Michael Bungay-Stania's uh, coaching questions. They're beautiful because they're so open and they're quite safe the way he's worded them. So look it up. We'll put it in the show notes. Are there things that you are like your go-to questions that create this sense of safety or I guess allow people to be courageous in a safe way is that even a thing as well (laughs) courageous in a safe way I don't even know I look I think that you have to be safe to be courageous I really believe that so I am not advocating people suddenly speaking their truth if it's not a safe space because I do think that's dangerous. So I think this comes back down to what are you there for? What do you, you know, what do you um, care about and how do you be the best version of you within this context and not walk away internalizing any of the, because I think I have worked in places which haven't been safe and, or haven't felt safe. And I walked away with a lot of negative self-talk. And I think it's really important to kind of go, there's a difference between me in a safe space and me in a space that's filled with fear. And that isn't anything that I need to do deep introspective work on. (laughs) That's just, I'm in the wrong space. So I think uh, we need to have ownership over our own boundaries around safety and clarity over what's acceptable and what's not. And I think that becomes a life lesson to sort of work out, well, you know, where am I intimidated and on being the best version of me? And it's something I've got to do something about internally. And when am I being so intimidated and trapped and feeling so insecure? And it's actually nothing to do with me. And I think that that learning the difference from that is is really important. And when you do learn the difference and you do understand, okay, it's something to do with me. You know, I've been in meetings before or like a boardroom, waiting for a boardroom sort of, um, invitation and waiting outside in the atrium and you know there's all these brass kind of fittings and thick curtains and mahogany and everything's kind of designed to sort of make me feel like I'm out of place that's how it feels to me that I'm not I don't belong and I'm sitting outside and I can hear all the laughing and there's inside the room and I'm waiting to be invited and my mouth's going dry and I'm starting to feel really insignificant and not particularly important and that these people are really important and and really significant and this power differential and that is all in my head 
Um, and that is my responsibility then to do something about that because I have created this whole scenario based on the curtains um, and not really anything to do with nobody's being mean to me or nobody's doing anything. It's a, it's a belief that I have incorporated over my life and one that I can challenge. So this difference between when do I have a responsibility to do something to allow myself to feel confident or courageous enough to do something that is uncomfortable, knowing that it's safe enough for me to uh, reap the rewards of that versus when am I in a really unsafe space where actually if I did something, it's going to have a consequence and am I prepared to, to face into that consequence? Both Shell and I and, and you too, Amy, see the insides of organizations and we hear some horror stories and there are a few organizations even as we're talking that come to mind for me where they have a culture that is psychologically unsafe and that is not something that's going to be able to be shifted by an employee dare I say not by any individual um maybe the CEO but that's probably going down another rabbit hole when we talk about that hierarchy I guess the question I have is when we've got a workplace where the, it, the culture is such that you could call it toxic, it's psychologically unsafe and that needs to go through a radical shift. If I'm an employee and I'm in that environment, what do I do? Do I wait it out? Do I leave? You know, do I try and do my little piece in that, in that bigger picture? What would be your advice? It's so hard to advise. I think that, you know, safety... I think is is a has a ripple effect, right? So even within a unsafe space, um, you could have a really safe team. Does that make sense? So you could have yes. like four or five people around you where you have complete safety, and that might be what you need to enable you to make use of this potential um, opportunity of this role. So um, I and essentially that's us in our world, right? We're not, you know, there. It, there are lots of unsafe things in our world and we create these pockets of safety that have ripples effects. And some of those ripples are really big and you can have um, a team that has really high safety that then has a ripple effect to kind of the other teams around it and creates this kind of growing sort of safety. So I don't want to say you can't change these things because I think you can and you can create it in a really small way um, first. So you, you look to create safety within your team, within a context of knowing what that environment is. But I do also think that what your question brings up is this awareness of choice that we all have over who we are and where we be and what our life is. And there are sacrifices that we make or there are things that we do which um, we that makes sense for us at a particular point in our life. And I think for all of us, it's, it's uh, important for us to understand what those sacrifices are if we're willing to take them um, for the thing that, we're, that we value. So for some of us, um, you know, if there is an environment which is really hallowed and really kind of wonderful to have on your CV, it's an incredible opportunity um, and it comes with an unsafe environment, you might be prepared to do that for a particular amount of time and that's okay and uh, I think the danger comes when we internalize 
our inability to handle a toxic environment, that's really dangerous. If we walk away from that environment thinking, I, you know, I, I, or, or that we harden in some way to ourselves because of that environment. So we just want to be really conscious all the time of what we're choosing um, to tolerate, what our boundaries are, and how we're constantly stretching into this idea of how do I make myself feel safe within this particular space? Wow. Oh, I, oh, <laughs> I love that. Of do, we got to, we have to be careful not to internalize. A, I, I, oh, this is so, oh, okay, and I just go on. I love, <laughs> I love, I love, I love yeah, I'm just yeah. processing. The thing I like in that is, I've seen this so many times where people leave a toxic culture and it takes them a really long time to recover because maybe they've overstayed and they have, like you said, like in that moment of in that team, they thought this is this is my problem. Like I'm actually the person who's not doing the job right or whatever. And they the self-talk becomes really negative. And then it takes them that, like it could take, you know, six plus months longer to recover and rebuild your confidence. Uh, just to kind of close up this conversation, I'd love your advice. If someone right now is listening and they feel like they're in that zone where they've lost their confidence because they're, or they've internalized some of that stuff of, I guess, working in that toxic environment, what would your advice be to them to kind of unpack or, or break out of some of that negative self-talk? Well, this is such a huge question. And um, I, I just, I have to say that I think, you know, we could have gone down a whole, another conversation around, you know, what is resilience and what is kind of, um, you know, you could even sort of say about a lot of um, women leadership courses, which are teaching women to tolerate or work within a system that isn't particularly um, well empowering rather than changing the system, right? So we tend to try and fix the person with low confidence rather than the system that's creating the low confidence. Does that make sense? Um, so we talk about somebody getting more resilient rather than looking at the the culture of the space that makes them feel not very resilient. <laughs> so I think that yes. there's this really important piece here around um, trying to sit with what is it that I am feeling and what is where is that coming from? Is that coming from my triggers around what makes me feel fear? Um, and then, you know, when we're back in the loudest guest and, and all the fear stuff, but is it about my sort of stuff? Um, and, and how much of this is about the environment and what the environment uses to capitalize on the human resources. So, uh, you know, some systems do capitalize on fear. And so if we notice that that is a thing and that is something that the system promotes, um, it's a call again, it's back to self. Um, how do I perform in that, in that system? Can I keep hold of my boundaries? Can I understand what, what's happening with my self-talk? Has it dialed up? What do I need to do to kind of manage that? And it becomes a self-care piece again. But I think it's back to this idea of what am I valuing? Like if I'm valuing this role, 
Um, what is it about this role? Is it the money? Is it the prestige? Is it the brand? Um, what is it that I am actually valuing? Is it a story about this brand that's kind of, you know, um, I like telling other people that I work for this place. What is it that's kind of, uh, what am I getting out of this? And then what are the costs? So we're just looking to, it's almost, again, this noticing piece of being conscious of the decisions that we make, how much we're doing it out of choice, and how much is the environment kind of pulling us towards um, habits or things that actually don't lead me to my best self. Dr. Amy Silver, thank you so much for joining us again on this show. I feel like there are so many people listening right now that needed to have this conversation with us. And if that is you and you feel like you would like to continue the conversation, Shell and I would always encourage you to jump onto the My Millennial Money Facebook group because it's a really wonderful source of being able to say, hey, this is my uh, story right now. And you can share anonymously if that does make, you know, you feel like you're more in your comfort zone and then hear from other people. And, and I think something we like to make sure that all of our listeners know is that if you're sitting in a space at the moment that you feel like you're ticking those boxes that Shell rang out, ran, read out rather, it's not psychologically safe for you, you're not alone. And there are ways and means to, to I guess, adjust that and yeah. to move through that. And to become the facilitator of other people's safety. Oh, I just, I just love it. Oh, you can tell I'm really excited. Amy, People are going to want to talk to you, thank you, and find out more about your courses and workshops and things that you have available. How do people find out more about you? Just head to the website, dramysilver.com. You'll find everything there. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, always a pleasure. So we'll put that in the show notes too so people can find you. And Amy, thanks so much for chatting. We just love hanging out with you. So much fun. As always, thanks for hanging out. And if you enjoy the show, leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen and join the Facebook community and you'll find Em and I on LinkedIn. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks, Shell. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money Medical, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, and My Millennial Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.